This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio with guest host Jane Brown. Libby will be back tomorrow. She's celebrating Rosh Hashanah. It wasn't that long ago we were talking about the incident in Grand Prairie, Alberta, targeting Christian Freeland when the deputy prime minister was verbally harassed in a profanity-laced tirade by a local resident. Now we're learning from conservative leader Pierre Poiliev that a known far-right activist named Jeremy McKenzie apparently sent a vile message targeting Poiliev's wife. The conservative leader has since released a statement saying the message in question was brought to the RCMP to investigate. Then there's Liberal MP Mark Gerritsen, who represents Kingston and the Islands. And he says that uh, a threatening and sexually violent message from someone named Jeff Jenkins targets his wife. Gerritsen writes, he agrees with Pierre Poiliev on this. Attack me all you want. Leave our families out of it. And now, the Recovering Politicians Panel. Joining us with reaction to this story and other political issues of the week, Lisa Raitt, former deputy leader of the Federal Conservatives, Charles Souza, former Ontario Liberal Finance Minister, and Sherry DeNovo, former NDP, MPP, and recipient of the Order of Canada. Welcome to you all. Hi, Jane. Good afternoon, everyone. Lisa, these incidents are disgusting and feel like they're kind of uh, the next level attack from people in this country. Uh, yes, definitely. Um, I, I just hope that both what happened with Christia Freeland and in this case that these that these individuals uh, see charges of some sort. I, I mean, I want I want to see an example be made of, quite frankly, so that folks take uh, like a second breath to figure out whether or not this is acceptable behavior or not acceptable behavior. And I, um, it, it's terrifying. I, I had the opportunity to speak to two female cabinet ministers of different parties across the provinces in the past two days, and we all shared stories about being afraid, about being afraid in public. And this, this has to stop. I mean, I know it has to stop, but honestly, we need society to rise up and, and we need some charges on this stuff. Charles, what are your initial thoughts on both of these incidents? You know, you often hear that when you get into politics, you have to develop a thick skin. But there's a line that's crossed when you start talking about your families. And I get it. You know, politics, people disengage. Sometimes they take a narrow point of view. This whole influence that's being associated with social media creates some disengagement and fragmentation. But when people are threatened, when people feel afraid to be out in public or go to a parade and be hassled, that's crossing the line. And I can speak from experience. I've never felt threatened. I I, I mean, the 11 years I was there, I I felt okay. I, I never worried about it until one guy who was stalking us for two years started to talk about my wife. And then the OPP got involved, and they went to check out what he was all about. And it's, an, it's disturbing that these things take place. And I don't know what the answer is. I don't know 
what kind of surveillance or what you do to uh, avoid engaging in breaching privacy issues, but there has to be some kind of, uh, some kind of, uh, something has to be corrected. And I don't know what the punishment is in these instances, but, uh, you know, you have Trump in the South who was uh, somewhat cowardly, I find, providing and supporting misinformation. And yet when you travel through the U.S. and then you end up in Ontario, you have these F.U., F. Trudeau signs everywhere mm-hmm. as well. And it seems acceptable, and it shouldn't be. Charles, do you mind telling us how that situation was resolved? Well, I, I actually uh, ignored him forever until my staff came involved, and they contacted the OPP, says, listen, they're talking about your wife. He's engaging about your kids. They're following you around. Something is not right. The OPP went and met with him. And the worst part is, I don't even know who this guy is. I have no idea why he had an, an issue with us. So was he charged? Um, it wasn't even in my writing. It was bizarre. Was he charged? Was there any kind of penalty? I don't, penalty? Know. No, you don't know. that I'm aware of. In fact, it only annoyed him more, and he started to come back even further as wow. a result of the OPB visit. And then they corrected it, and then it stopped. I don't know what took place. Sherry, what are your thoughts on what's going on? Well, Charles uh, makes a very important point. This is gender-based violence. Um, this is happening to women disproportionately. And, of course, women in the public eye even more disproportionately. Uh, and that goes for wives of as well. But I think of the, the situation with Christian Freeland, Catherine McKenna. I mean, I have had those kinds of attacks aimed at me online and uh, and on the phone and to our constituent office. I, I, in fact, you know, thinking about it, I don't know any woman in politics that hasn't felt intimidated by somebody in this way at some point. Um, in terms of Pierre uh, Poilievre's response, though, uh, I mean, you know, I, I was thinking of that line from Chaucer, if you dine with the devil, you better have a very long spoon. I mean, he's been seen shaking this man's hand. Um, it was all over social media. He knows that Diagolon has been investigated as a potentially terrorist organization. Um, he's been courting these people, let's be frank, um, again, all over social media. And when it attacks him, it's a problem. He was very, you know, loath. I mean, it took him a while to come forward about the Christopher Freeland issue. Mm-hmm. Um, you can't, you, you know, can't play favorites here. Um, these, these folk are dangerous and, uh, and, and we know, you know, some of them, we know this one in particular. And, uh, of course, I mean, I don't know why charges aren't being laid against him, um, to Lisa's point. I mean, it's very clear who did it. It's very clear what this organization stands for. I mean, we saw, you know, the van attacks in cell. And there are certain organizations that are misogynist by nature. We know who they are. Um, and yet somehow we allow them to continue. Um, and I, and I think that's, that's, quite, that's truly terrifying. So, um, you know, a little bit too little too late here, um, but hopefully this opens his eyes and um, and he starts defending all women, not just his wife. Well, you have to give credit to Mark Gerritsen as well, Lisa, for saying, he, I agree with Pierre Poiliev, you have to, you can attack us, you can attack our policies, but not our family members. So, there's a, a, it's not a partisan issue. There are people out there who feel compelled, feel privileged enough to be able to say the horrible things that they're saying in these tweets to these politicians. Yeah. Well, Jane, I mean, here, here's the dangerous part about, about, um, pointing out the fact uh, that Pierre 
didn't put down this this argument prior to because um, it's really it's unfair. Look, the person who who said the things that they did about Pierre's wife has charges against him. Obviously, very dangerous. Works with unsavory people and is you know as Pierre put it in his press release is a dirtbag. I've had police involvement twice in my career. Both times the threats came from members of unionized labor. Both times. Do I in turn taint the entire labor movement? No, I don't, because I recognize it was individuals involved. So let's just be really careful about trying to tie this into some kind of political or partisan issue, because it happens to a whole bunch of people all the time. So, Lisa, you don't think this is driven by a forced divisiveness that people in Canada and the United States, for that matter, have been made to to feel by certain politicians? I believe that people feel, I think men feel power, and the way that they want to describe or to uh, exert their power is by threatening women. And I think it comes from not only the right, I think it comes from the left, and I think it comes from the middle. I think it's individualistic. And if organizations give them the power to do so, then the organization should be attacked rightfully. But if it's not coming from the organization and it's dealt with appropriately by authorities, I think that's that's a, a fair outcome as well. Sherry, does that make sense to you, what Lisa's saying? Um, well, certainly it can come from anyone uh, in, in any with any political background, um, but Diagalon is not anyone. This is an organization very uh, that people know about. It's I know about it. Every you know anybody who follows news knows about it. Um, it, it has been investigated already. This is a member there, um, and so this is an organization we know exists, and this is an organization um, that should you know feel the weight of the law. Um, and so, so here we go. Now, you know, if it, if it was a union, um, and a unionist spoke up, my goodness, you know, they'd get a visit, I, I hope, <laughs> from, you know, their, yeah, their constabulary. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, again, you know, this, this is, this is not about, this is, you know, not about, uh, one side or the other, but it is about, you know, knowing who you're dealing with when you're dealing with an organization that is statedly misogynist. Charles, over to you for a second. At what point do you go to police with um, a threat? Like, what has to be written in the threat or what has to be said verbally from an individual to a politician before it could potentially become criminal? Yeah, as I was mentioning, I always ignored uh, some of these folks as wing nuts, and I, and I just wouldn't pay attention or pay heed to them. Um, but I guess when you start to suggest that we're going to do you in or we're going to harm uh, your family, yeah, that's that's not kosher. That's just not right. And mm-hmm. and, and what worries me though is, and, and I, I understand the point that's being made, but there is an association that seems to be allowing these individuals to speak their mind because they don't just do it on social media now. They'll do it out in public, and they'll yell, and they'll do certain things, and, I, and I'm shocked. And, and to Lisa's point, I've seen it on all levels, at, but from all different party stripes. So it's not a partisan issue. But the targets are minorities. They're women. They're certain politicians. And what worries me is data is being bought and sold to provide influence in some of the correspondence that's being made through social media. That's worrisome. It's worrisome that there's an organized approach to targeting certain individuals to change social and political uh, impressions, at times fragmenting people, distorting the truth, and disengaging everyone from political engagement as a result. And that's what's causing me concern. 
I'm with our recovering politicians panel, Charles Souza, Lisa Raitt, and Sherry DeNovo. It's Jane for Libby here on Zoomer Radio's Fight Back. Let me put this question to each of you before we move on to the next topic. Lisa, why do you think common decency is devolving? Um, I, I wish I knew. I really wish I knew, uh, it, but it's it's very scary. It's a lot different than it was 13 years ago when I was involved in the in the game, um, and and it's coming from all sides. So you're not protected within a party just because you identify as a conservative, like I do. It doesn't mean that somebody who's taken a membership out in your party is going to respect you and not make threats against you. So it's it's a very different world right now, and I. I don't want to blame anyone because blaming just takes away your your power to help change. And I want to I want to help change on this, but I don't know how. Sherry. Yeah, I mean, I think let, let's look at the gains that women have made, and we have um, made some significant gains, you know. And, and I think what we're seeing is, and we've been seeing it this for quite a while now, is backlash. You know, it's it's okay to a certain point, but oh my goodness, you know, when you be get to be deputy, you know, prime minister, maybe too much, too much. And, and we're hearing this um, from, a, you know, let's face it, group of men that are feeling threatened uh, in an economy where, you know, they don't have the privilege that they once had uh, in terms of employment and everything else. So you're seeing a backlash the same, same way you're seeing it, you know, with racism. Um, you know, gains are made pushback happens. And, uh, and I do agree, this is an educational issue too. Uh, what, you know, how, how are we raising our boys? You know, I have a boy. Um, what are we teaching them uh, about equality? And, uh, you know, and what's, what's happening in the school systems? We, we need to be looking at some of this uh, because there's no question. And, and the other aspect is media, of course, as well. Um, I mean, we got a lot of shock you know, a radio going on. We've got a lot of, you know, misogyny that's, you know, it part of some, you know, stand-up comedian's acts. Uh, and, uh, and you know, again, there's nothing funny about it. Um, women are still being assaulted, you know, about one in four. Uh, you know, women are still not making the same amount of money as men. I mean, there's we have a distance to go. We saw the overturning of Roe versus Wade. So we know there's pushback. Um, and I think it's up to every single one of us, um, you know, male, female, and other, to, to speak out and do our, do our bit everywhere. And Charles, final comment on this topic to you. Yeah, sometimes people seem to confuse, people I've spoken to seem to be confused between political debate and a war. I mean, people seem to think that just because we compete in the House against one another, that we don't respect one another thereafter. They don't see what happens to individuals after the debate is whole, but we still carry on conversations and we treat each other with respect, regardless of our ideologies. And at times people seem to lack what I should call sportsmanship, right? If you're in a comp- competition and you're playing ball and you're, you're a guy and you're all full of testosterone and you're doing all these gutsy things, at the end of the game, you shake each other's hands. And I don't think we're shaking people's hands these days. Agree. Okay, well, let's get to the real issues. And I'll go back to Sherry DeNovo uh, and ask you to expand on your tweet from last night, which reads, breaking news, Poiliev and his caucus voted to deny the dental program to children today. All of his caucus is covered for dental care, of course. Sad. Yeah. <laughs> I did tweet that, and I do think it's sad. 
Uh, I mean, and and this is not a dental program really that goes very far. I mean, this is not presenting your OHIP card and getting dental coverage, which is quite frankly what's happening in many of the European, you know, much of the Western world. Um, this is this is still a means-tested system, and uh, you know, right now it's what six hundred and fifty dollars for a family for those making under ninety thousand. Anybody who has a child under twelve, and we're talking about under twelve-year-olds, um, knows that it can be a pretty expensive age sometimes for, for dental treatment. And I do know because I'm, you know, out there in ministry, uh, many families who do not have the money to pay for even cleanings. Well, um, I remember being in, in Sweden once on a parliamentary trip and someone there saying, well, we're shocked. This was years ago. Shocked that we didn't have dental coverage in Canada. They said, well, you know, somebody with bad teeth, how can they even get employment? I mean, so this is not cosmetic and, um, and it's really a very minor step, I think, in terms of what we should be doing for our children to give people an equal start in life. So absolutely. And, you know, sometimes you know you're you're entitled to your entitlements sometimes in the political world, and I think the average person out there sees that. You know why are they getting what is impossible for me to get, and for my children to get? So um, absolutely, um, uh, again, uh, everybody should be on board with this. It seems to me, if everybody who's on board with healthcare being covered at all should be on board with with this program. Well, Lisa, as a former federal conservative cabinet minister, why would the conservative caucus not voted in favor of dental care for children? Yep, that's and that's the right way to ask me, Jane, because I I wasn't inside the caucus, but what I what I understand from what I've read since is that they have come down on the on the notion that this is something of provincial jurisdiction, and as a result, it's interference with the province, which is an interesting argument. Because to Cherry's point, I mean, you've got to you've got to give that response at the door. So I think it's very fair for the NDP and the Liberals to point out the fact that the Conservatives voted against this. They're going to have to wear it, and they're going to have to explain their way at uh, at the doors when they're they're seeking election or when they get calls into their offices as to why they voted against this kind of bill. I think they're probably also going to say that they believe that tax cuts are better than than going through this program, and we'll just see where where the public appetite is at the end of the day. So it's it's on brand, in my opinion, for the Conservatives to vote in this way. And it's going to be for them to try to figure out whether or not it's going to hurt them in the long term vis-a-vis votes. Well, and Charles, there is also the aspect that the opposition always votes against the government. Uh, that was my initial thought, that they're just voting against it because it is uh, it has been put forward by both the New Democrats and the Liberals. Yeah, that's a fair comment, and it happens. And I know even in the provincial side, we try to introduce something similar. Uh, but Bill C-31 comes down to two issues. I think Michael Coteau said it in, in the House. It's like it's basic dental care for students under 12 and $500 rent subsidies for, for about 1.8 million Canadians. And what the argument is, is the Conservatives and everyone is talking about inflation and affordability, and these two programs would provide some support for those most in need. Yeah, so they'll have to explain themselves as to why they wouldn't want to do that. And by the way, you're always welcome to get in on the conversation with our Recovering Politicians panel. The numbers to call are 416-360-0740 or toll-free 1-866-740-4740. If you're just joining us, it's Jane for Libby, along with Charles Souza, Sherry DeNovo, and Lisa Raitt. Now, the COVID border restrictions are dropped as of this weekend. Big announcement yesterday 
from several Trudeau cabinet ministers. It was interesting, uh, panel. Yesterday, I had on pollster John Wright, and he speculated that Justin Trudeau had the end of the restrictions announced, so it would no longer be an obstacle for the conservatives to point to the liberals and say they're taking away our freedom. What do you think about that, Sherry? Oh, I agree. <laughs> I mean, listen, I, I, I think this was a very political move. Um, not, not sure. I mean, the border restrictions, one thing. I mean, the, you know, traveling, I, listen, I'm still going to be wearing my mask on trains, planes, and, you know, in, in tight spaces. Um, but, um, but, you know, COVID is not over. It is not over. Um, the WHO admits it's not over. It says, you know, it's, it's, you know, the end is in sight, but it's not over yet. And remember, you know, we've we, 606 million some odd people. We've got 6.5 million dead around the world, um, at least um, from what we know. So, I mean, what was that one study of West, uh, wastewater where they said like 50% of Canadians probably have had it or not? I mean, I, I certainly have had it despite being fully vaccinated. So, I mean, I, again, I, I think that what we really do need to signal here, um, uh, you know, yes, it's it. Life should get back to some degree of normalcy, but um, is is let's get our vaccination rate up because that's slowing and that's concerning, um, and let's continue to ventilate our classrooms. There are so many stories coming out of schools now where half the staff is off, half the kids are you know away sick, and nobody knows why. Um, and and let's you know understand that masking is not just about your health, it's about the vulnerable, it's about those who are immune compromised, and that if you're in spaces with them all day long, you're doing them a good turn by by wearing a mask. So again, you know, compassion for our neighbor and following uh, health guidelines, still a good thing, no matter what the, the government does politically. And is this political? Of course it is. And, and I and I get that whole concept, absolutely. But two and a half years into this pandemic, we all know how we should be acting. We all know that we should get the vaccines that are offered to us as soon as they become available. Uh, so, Lisa, on mm. some level, dropping all these restrictions two and a half years in, when we know how to act, at what point do we embrace personal responsibility and and let down the guard of society and, and let us take care of ourselves and protect ourselves? Well, I think we're there. Um, and I think people just formed their their own opinions. And, and just thinking about, you know, vaccines in general, how it went from it's going to prevent you from getting COVID to it's going to lessen its, its impacts. It doesn't matter to me. I'm glad to get a vaccine because I did get COVID once. I didn't get it a second time and my symptoms were, were relatively mild. And I say that's because I took the vaccine, quite frankly. But I'll tell you, I came in from Washington, D.C. this morning and I used the ArriveCan app. And I think they they ended up deciding to, uh, to not make it mandatory anymore because it was just having some major technical fails mm-hmm. at the border. My 74-year-old dad was put in COVID ArriveCan jail when he was coming back from my sister's place in Bermuda. We couldn't locate him for like six hours in the airport because they wouldn't let him use his telephone because he didn't fill in his app appropriately. And then he ended up getting these messages saying that you have to quarantine for 14 days. And that was all incorrect and wrong. So I think what they really encountered was just a a meltdown in the app, uh, ArriveCan app's applicability. And it was going to cause far more pain going forward, and they probably just couldn't fix it. So it's it's good that it's no longer mandatory. If they keep it, I may use it, to be honest, because it, 
It does ease congestion at the border as you're coming through if you know how to use it, and that's a good tool. But uh, if it's not working widespread, you can't make it mandatory. Yeah, good point. Uh, and what about you, Charles, in terms of dropping the COVID border restrictions this weekend? Political or the right time in the pandemic or a combination of both? Well, it's certainly going to help those border towns where they rely on tourism back and forth between the U.S. and for, for sure. economic trade. So that's important for them to have ease of access. But I've been traveling for the past six, five weeks uh, in some European countries that were hard hit by COVID, and they're pretty lax. i got to say, they uh, people are putting on masks. They do it because of personal responsibility. They recognize the existence of the threat. But the airports and so forth, no mandatory restrictions. We moved around quite freely. And if you're going to get COVID, frankly, you're going to get it at Pearson Airport when you arrive because they cattle you through and you're putting in these lineups and really tight situations, especially mm-hmm. during peak activities. Um, that's, that was more cumbersome than the actual traveling on the airplane. Um, but I, I think people should be responsible on their own. Take the precautions necessary. And take your vaccines by, by far. We, we, uh, we've all been advising people to do so. We certainly have as well. One more quick topic. I've got about two minutes left with our Recovering Politicians panel. We do have a candidate, officially a candidate for the Ontario NDP leadership race, and that is Marit Stiles. Uh, wondering about, and I know Sherry DeNovo, you have publicly endorsed Marit. Why? Um, well, she's a, she's a stand-up gal, is what she is. Um, she's she's one of those politicians who's not a careerist. She's there on principles, and you know nobody wants a one-party state, as I say. But I admire people who who stand for their principles, no matter what their uh, partisan background. Um, and she does. And so I've witnessed her over the years do that. She's certainly uh, got a high profile in the press because she's worth interviewing. And uh, time for a change at at Queens Park and the NDP, and she's it. So for all those reasons, um, uh, fluently bilingual, um, yeah, she's got the goods. And I quite frankly think this is going to be a walk. Um, I don't think that any serious challenges are co- going to come through for her. Um, so, uh, so you know, my bet's in. She's leader. Lisa Raid, a coronation for Marit Stiles. Well, you know what? For the first time in a very, very long time in politics, I actually don't know who she is. Uh-huh. Isn't that shocking? So I'm looking forward to uh, her team getting her profile up. I know, Jerry, you say that she's got some good uh, profile in media, so it's not connecting with me. And I'm very curious to know who she is. And your endorsement goes a long way for me to take a second look. But now is the time for folks around her to really get her name out because I'm kind of in the bubble and I don't have a lot of reference points. Charles Souza, you know Marit personally from your time at Queen's Park. Well, actually, we didn't. Um, you didn't cross at the same time, but oh. I do know Merritt through the engagement I'm doing on long-term care and affordable housing complex in her writing, and so I've come to know her in that regard. I do like her maritime roots. Someone who's from Newfoundland, so I like her broad perspective on uh, on on Canada on on who we are as individuals. Um, we'll see. These are ranked ballots. That's going to be happening in March. Uh, they'll be by preference. I don't know the others that are running against her, so. She's, she is a good candidate. What we're hearing... With, with uh, she, she's, not, she's, she's outstanding. Possibly uh, fellow caucus members Wayne Gates and Laura May Lindo have previously hinted they may also run. But I think, uh, Marit, in as much as Lisa's saying not everybody knows her, certainly people know of Marit more than they do uh, her caucus colleagues, I, I, would, I would say. Don't you think, Sherry? 
Uh, yes, absolutely. And uh, again, everybody's pretty new at Queen's Park, but Myrit's mm-hmm. not uh, by any means new to politics. She was, you know, president of the federal NDP. She's been a school trustee. Uh, she worked uh, in for ACTRA. I mean, she's involved in union work. Um, so, I mean, that's that's her. And uh, and I think, interestingly enough, you know, at Labor Day, one of the things that really endeared me to her is she didn't cross a picket line. So there you go. Um, a stand-up person with a good union backbone. We will leave it there. Recovering politicians, thank you so much for your time today. Be well, everyone. Yeah. Thanks. Bye. Bye-bye. Lisa Raitt, former deputy leader of the federal conservatives, Charles Souza, former Ontario liberal finance minister, and Sherry DeNovo, former NDP MPP and recipient of the Order of Canada. It's Jane for Libby. She is back tomorrow. And coming up in the second half of Fight Back, family doctors continue to give up their practices in Ontario. Is it a crisis yet? We discuss next. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby's Nimer on Zoomer Radio with guest host Jane Brown. We've learned in the last day family doctors in Ontario left the profession at the start of the COVID pandemic at double the rate of the years before. New research from Unity Health Toronto indicates about 3% or almost 400 family doctors across the province stopped practicing between March and September of 2020 resulting in some 170,000 patients losing their primary care physician. The report's lead author, Dr. Tara Kieran, who practices family medicine at Toronto St. Michael's Hospital, says we need to address the issue by supporting more people to go into family medicine and primary care. Dr. Kieran joins us now to talk about the report. Thank you for your time. Hi. Doctor, could you provide us first with a picture of family medicine in Toronto, which was revealed in the finer print in your report, and how it's been changing? Yeah, absolutely. Um, You know, so even before the pandemic, we knew that not every Ontarian had access to a family doctor, and too many were left without one. So data from about March 2020 um, that uh, my colleagues and and others have uh, um, crunched have found that 1.8 million Ontarians didn't have a family doctor um, even before the pandemic started. And our study just shows that things have only gotten worse. So we found that in the first six months of the pandemic, about uh, 385 family doctors stopped work entirely, um, which was about 3% or double what we would have expected based on the average portion of family doctors who stopped work in the previous years. Uh, so the previous years, it was about 1.6% on average per year. And during that first pandemic year, it was 3%. So really, uh, you know, quite a lot more and really worrying given that so many people already didn't have a family doctor. Why are doctors leaving the profession? I'm sure it's a combination of things, including retirement, right? Yeah, so our findings, you know, uh, suggest that the pandemic may have accelerated the retirement plans of some. Um, We found that of the 385 doctors who stopped work, more of them were over 65. Um, More of them had a smaller panel size. Um, And so those are, you know, indications that these were people who were probably heading into retirement, um, that they um, were 
maybe even cutting back already. But then the pandemic began and um, they said, you know, it's time for me to just stop. And there could be a few different reasons for that. So for one, they could have just been worried about their own health, which was very legitimate, you know, especially at that time, it was before vaccines were there. Um, We didn't uh, we didn't know very much about the infectivity of COVID and kind of we were worried about what would happen if older people or people with chronic illness got COVID. Um, so uh, there are lots of legitimate reasons related to health. And then the other piece is that uh, we did find that family doctors who work fee-for-service were more likely to stop work. And when you work fee-for-service, you basically get paid for every visit. And what we know happened in the first six months of the pandemic is that Visits really plummeted because people were told very legitimately, again, don't go see your family doctor unless it's something really urgent. And, and that made sense. Um, but it also, you know, at the same time, there weren't adequate income supports available for family doctors. And so when the visit stopped, their income went down. At the same time, they had to pay their staff. They had to pay their rent. They actually had to pay more for enhanced infection prevention and control measures. And then they had to pay for personal protective equipment, which was also actually really hard to find. In addition to it being expensive, it was hard to find. So lots of stresses on family doctors who we have to remember are largely small business owners in Ontario. And I'd like to hear from you as well. If you have recently lost your family doctor as a result of any number of reasons, including retirement, uh, and if you are currently looking for a family doctor and having a difficult time, just so we can paint a picture uh, with our listeners of what is actually happening out there, numbers to call are 416-360-0740 or one 740 Apart from the pandemic, Dr. Kieran, and when you look at how the trend was going before 2020, was the percentage of doctors leaving the profession the same as the percentage of doctors entering the profession? <laughs> really good question. Um, I think what was wor- what's worrisome is another trend that some researchers have have noted, and and that's a trend of um, fewer medical students choosing family medicine as a career. And then even the people who do choose to train in family medicine, fewer of them are choosing to set up um, the kind of practice that uh, follows people over their lifetime that looks after everyone from a newborn to an older person. Instead, many people who are being trained in family medicine opt to uh, do things like sports medicine or psychotherapy or exclusively palliative care. I mean, many of those are, are legitimate things that we need, but at the same time, it takes people away from um, setting up, uh, you know, an office-based practice where they can care for people over time, which is what so many people in Ontario are missing now. Uh, doctor, before we let you go, and I'm going to bring in two family doctors on the other side of the break to talk about um, their personal experiences with regards to your report. You say we need to address this issue by supporting more people to go into family medicine and primary care. How? How do we do that? I think there are a couple of ways. Uh, one is by through payment reform. So um, we need to make family medicine um, more attractive financially for family doctors. In particular, that means moving away from a fee-for-service system and op- opening up more different options for a stable income. In fact, you can go further to say that many people uh, would many uh, 
graduating doctors would be attracted to being able to go into family medicine if they knew they could, they didn't have to worry about the small business side and could actually, you know, go sign up with a clinic where they would be able to take vacation, where they'd be able to take maternity leave um, and didn't have to worry about running their practice during those times uh, because that practice is being run and they just come in and, and, and do their part being a doctor. Um, and then the second really big piece that I'd say is that we really need to uh, expand the number of family practices working in a team-based model. Um, work we've done has shown that patients who are treated in teams, so that means teams with not just doctors, but nurses, nurse practitioners, social workers, pharmacists, those patients often will have better outcomes. They'll, they'll, they're less likely to go to the eMERGE department. They're more likely to have their chronic disease needs met. Um, and at the same time, research has shown that uh, family doctors who work in that kind of model are, are happier. They're less burned out. So right now, only about 25% of people who work, uh, living in Ontario have a family doctor who works in that kind of team. And we really need to spread that model. I think the last thing that I wanted to say is that I do think, you know, your listeners uh, should add their voice to the public debate. And we've actually set up a, a project to help people do that. It's called Our Care. So just go to the website, ourcare.ca, and take our national research survey and tell us, um, you know, do you have a family doctor? Do you not? What do you like about it? What do you want family doctor care to look like? Mm -hmm. And what would you might be willing to trade off for that? So we want you to be part of this discussion to help shape the solution. And those are, those are great questions for our Zoomer radio audience as well. Ourcare.ca or give us a call. And we do have some of you waiting to get uh, on the radio. 416-360-0740 or one 740 Dr. Tara Kieran, thank you for your time. Thank you. Dr. Kieran is the lead author of a report from Unity Health Toronto. She also practices family medicine at Toronto St. Michael's Hospital, where I gave birth to both of my children quite a long time ago. This is Zoomer Radio's Fight Back. Jane for Libby and two other family docs will join us on the other side of the break, as well as your calls next. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio with guest host Jane Brown. We're talking about family doctors leaving the profession in Ontario and what can be done about this. Joining Fight Back now, Dr. Neely Kaplan-Murth, an Ottawa-based family physician and medical anthropologist, and Dr. Nadia Alam, family doctor and anesthetist in Georgetown, Ontario. Hello, doctors. Hi, good afternoon. Dr. Kaplan-Murth, does this report that we've been hearing about uh, from Dr. Kieran, does it resonate with you personally? It does and it doesn't. And I think that there's a part of it that is missing. Part of the picture is there that fee-for-service has been a problem for family physicians um, for a long time. At the very beginning of the pandemic, the, the first thing that I did was picked up the phone and uh, and I called CBC and I said, we need to talk about how the pandemic is going to affect family doctors, especially those of us in fee-for-service. But there are structural problems that aren't um, discussed. And one of the things is the Ontario Medical Association has not gone to bat for family doctors. So at the beginning of the pandemic, specialists got, um, got uh, income stabilization and family doctors did not. And then the disparity is such that um, people like Dr. Um, 
uh, Karen can work in these health teams, um, but they also protect those health teams and don't let other doctors join them. Uh, so, for example, there was a doctor recently who left practice in Ottawa, and that's a family health team. So it has all those wonderful benefits, and they wouldn't take another doctor to join them. So they basically have um, this gatekeeping that happens at a structural level from the province, where the province needs to change its policies. And then there's this weird gatekeeping that happens on the ground in the community, where some doctors enjoy the, the privilege and the benefits of working in um, situations where they're salaried and where they have extra supports, like Dr. Karen said, to have nurse practitioners funded by the province and dietitians and this whole wonderful team. But the rest of us beg and plead. So as people may or may not know, I had to make a huge uh, fuss because I was stuck in fee-for-service and the province said I could only join a non-fee-for-service practice if I moved my practice and joined so that I have a practice with six people in total all working together. And that doesn't work. I own the space I'm in and I have a marginalized population who needs to be able to walk to where I am in central Ottawa. And um, also, there was no group willing to have another doctor join them in downtown Ottawa, uh, no matter how much I begged and pleaded. So anyway, I got special permission from the Ministry of Health to join a group without having to move my office. But I did that because I've become a public figure and mm-hmm. I can make a huge think about things. Right. And um, my patients wrote to the MPPs and um, the MPPs wrote to the government. Well, I have colleagues who are still stuck in that exact same nightmare. They are going to close their practices and it's not about early retirement, we are not retirement age. We are middle-aged people who are still very much in um, the business of being family doctors, but we can't remain in fee-for-service. So my colleagues who can't do what I did, and it also risks destabilizing your patients, because if you are very public and you say, either you help me out or I close my practice, that freaks out your patients. But those other colleagues, they are still stuck in the same nightmare. They didn't get any kind of special exception, and they're on their own. And the Ontario Medical Association does nothing. They just say, well, I don't know, find a group of six people that you can join. And uh, they've appealed to like every single level and nothing happens. So what this means is these are people mid-career. These are not people about to retire. This is not a matter of recruiting new doctors. These are doctors who are hardworking, who are caring for vulnerable populations. Some of my patients or sorry, some of my colleagues provide all the mental health care to their patients that they can get because there are no psychiatrists available. Um, we're the ones who are asked to keep our patients out of hospital because the emergency rooms are overrun, and yet there is no support for us. Okay, let so, me go over to Dr. Yeah. Alam. Uh, uh, Dr. Alam, how do you see the situation where family doctors are leaving uh, in tandem with what Dr. Kaplan-Murth is also expressing? I think the report that Dr. Karen, with um, one of the authors for bears out what many of us on the front lines are seeing. We know the pandemic hit family medicine pretty hard. We also know that pre-pandemic, even before the pandemic started, family medicine was becoming a tough field, not just because fewer people were going into it, but the ones who were in it were burning out because they don't have adequate support. And it goes beyond finances, as Dr. Kaplan-Murth pointed out. It goes to not just having an allied team to support your patients, your complex patients, but also having access to imaging, access to labs, access to specialist support, and and all of the things that go towards taking care of a patient in a community practice. We saw it coming. 
this research bears it out. And my worry is that it's going to get worse before it gets better because it takes a long time to train a family doctor and let them work in the community. And we need solutions now. I mean, Jane, I've got patients who come to see me from Barrie, from Windsor, and they realize this is not an ideal situation. They do it because they cannot find a family doctor for trying in those areas. I would like to hear from you as well, uh, your experience with your own family doctor. If you are currently looking for a family doctor, the challenges around that. We are on this topic until the top of the hour at one o'clock. So give us a ring 416-360-0740 or one 740 Kathy in Lindsay, Ontario, thanks for waiting. What would you like to ask or add? Hi. Um, yeah, I... My husband is um, has been working for 40 years in Lindsay. He's a family physician, and he um, we're, we're both 72. I've been in the medical profession. Um, I have a daughter-in-law who's a family physician and a son who works at, in an ER in St. Mike's Hospital. So we're, we're a hospital fit. We're a doctor family kind of thing. Anyway, mm-hmm. he's been trying to find, mm-hmm. um, he mentioned to his patients, Five years ago, he was probably going to retire. He said, I won't leave until I find someone to help, you know, to take over the practice. He found someone. She has been working for four years with him. And he was, we had it all set up for him to retire at the end of November. And she bailed two weeks ago. Oh, no. Um, so she, he is in, you know, he, he's in tough shape right now in terms of trying to find someone. He thought maybe he can. Um, get some locums to come in and and help because mm-hmm. he needs time off. He's he's kind of burnt out too. Mm-hmm. Um, but he hung in through the whole pandemic. He has thirteen hundred patients, and that is a big problem. The majority of people now coming out as family physicians are female, and they don't want they don't want to work as hard as the male physicians, and maybe I'm generalizing, but that's just what we've seen. And I understand that. I'm a mom, had kids. <laughs> they want to work half day a week, you know, half days a week. Um, and, and I understand that. And lifestyle is a big issue for a lot of the younger family physicians coming out. Um, and just as an example, my husband was talking to a girl yesterday who was looking for doing some locums. She said she would come for a week in November, but she only wants to work half days. And she just graduated in 2019. Well, Kathy, yeah, well, thank you very much for your perspective. It is interesting, and I appreciate you calling in. Let's go to Brian in Caledon. Uh, Brian, your situation with your family, doctor. Yeah, my uh, doctor, he retired in June. He's in his mid-80s and that. So on the weekend, on Sunday, I end up with a wasp on my forehead and it's swollen into my eyes and nose and that I phoned his office because his daughter's a doctor with him and she's not taking on any of his patients so now I'm going to have to look for a doctor but the one thing I went to three walk-in clinics last night and all of them said to me oh you got to call and make an appointment and I said this is a walk-in clinic you know Mm -hmm. this is I don't understand so Anyway, I phoned uh, a relative of mine who's a retired doctor in that, and uh, he just told me to take Reactin and 20 milligrams, whatever, and ice for swelling, and that's what I'm doing right now. But 
you know, I'm in the same situation. I've got to look for a doctor now. Right. And how are you after your wasp bite? Oh, I'm Stain. not. Like, my eyes are swollen a bit. I I, I work driving a truck for a week for, yeah. uh, for a company and that, so I'm still driving. It's not bad. i got to be careful, but I'm still okay. Okay, thanks for sharing your story. Let's go to Lynn in Stony Creek. Lynn, your doctor's story. How are you? Fine, thanks. Go ahead. You're on the air. Uh, okay, uh, I have a doctor, but my girlfriend does not. And apparently, he lost his license. No one was no one was notified. And all the patients were left without a doc. That's that's right. And my girlfriend has a lot of problems, and she her only other thing is to go to a walk-in, but that doesn't do any good. Yeah. Yeah, that's uh, Dr. Kaplan Mirth, uh, and we do have other people who want to get in on the conversation as well. I mean, we're hearing from people. They don't have doctors. They're going to walk-in clinics. We haven't heard anything there about going to ERs, but um, does this sort of solidify in your mind what's going on? For me? Dr. Mirth, Kaplan Mirth, yes. So, I, I mean, honestly, I'm, I'm still reeling from the last, from the previous caller saying that um, somehow this is because women physicians don't work as much because in fee-for-service for the last 12 years, I've worked 60 hours a week. And the thing that enables me to do that is I have a partner at home who does a lion's share of taking care of children and other things. Women work double shifts when they're working in medicine and they're also providing for their families. And men can do the same um, as my partner does and enable their partners to work longer. But none of us should have to work 60 hours a week. And the model that that woman is talking about is a model of a white old man who has a woman at home taking care of his children. So I'm sorry, but that is not the reason we have a family doctor shortage. There's no respect for family doctors. We're not adequately financially supported. We're not structurally supported. And everybody needs work-life balance. The number of hours of unpaid work that we do, the hours and hours of paperwork, the drudgery that we do for specialists and all of the other things that people have no idea about, it is just shocking that somebody would say that women are the problem in medicine. Let's go to Kathy in Burlington. Kathy, your story about a family doctor situation? Hi, hi Jane. Um, I have a family doctor who's been wonderful. Um, but I had a medical problem and I needed to go back to a specialist. I called the specialist because I've been there a year previous, but you have to have, you have to see the, the doctor, the specialist within a year. Otherwise you need another referral. Anyway, I couldn't get through to her. Her mailbox was full. I called every day, never got a return call. I finally found, uh, called my family doctor. She called her directly. I got in to see her within a week. Turns out I had cancer and had to go to the Jervinsky. Wow. Now, if it hadn't been for my family doctor, I don't know how long I would have waited. And maybe by that time it would have spread. Luckily, they got it in time and I'm fine. But oh, I good. just wanted to say my family doctor is wonderful. And I don't know what we do without her. We're both, my husband and I are both seniors. So where, where do we go now? Where do we find another doctor? She re- retires and she's getting to that age that she's probably thinking about it. Okay. Thank you, Kathy. Thanks for your story. Uh, very quickly, Mary in Mississauga, final call and then a final comment from Dr. Alam. Go ahead, Mary. Hi, it's Mary Jane. I'm a retired registered nurse of 46 years active bedside nursing and had a wonderful family doctor for the last 35 years who not only did family medicine, he did obstetrics as well as eMERGE on the weekend. When he told us he was retiring, 
I was just so happy for him because he certainly deserved it. We lucked out when we got uh, this particular doctor, and uh, I just wish him the best. Well, thank you for calling. Uh, and, and Dr. Alam, obviously there are doctors retiring, but uh, to Dr. Kaplan-Mirth's point about middle-aged people working 60 hours a week, uh, what can be done to rectify this situation so that people aren't tempted to leave? It's a tough one to call, mainly because when we have a personnel shortage, right, we have a shortage of family doctors, we've got a shortage of nurse practitioners who do primary care, we've got a shortage right across the board for primary care. It means everybody works to fill in the gaps. And then it does look like a system where we're putting in 60 hours a week. My husband and I are, are two income earners. We both work full time. And it's been challenging. Our kids are very young. I've got four kids. But I, I do want to highlight, Jane, one of the things, and your previous callers just spoke about that, one of the reasons why I got into family medicine was because I want to know the beginning, middle, and end of a patient's mm-hmm. story. So I practice, you know, family medicine where I'm taking care of newborns, and I'm providing house calls to, to seniors, and I'm pr- providing palliative care to my, my patients who are near end of life. It is an incredibly rewarding field. and it keeps my patients well. Lots of health system studies show that primary care is the bedrock of any well-functioning system, and we need to support it. This this is a wake-up okay. call for policymakers, and that includes Ontario Medical Association, the government. It includes patients who can speak up and talk about what good family medicine looks like. We need to leave it it there. That is the final word. It is a good place to leave it. (laughs) Dr. Alam, Dr. Kaplan-Murth, thank you both for your time. Thank you. Take care. Dr. Nadia Alam is a family doctor in Georgetown. Dr. Neely Kaplan-Murth is an Ottawa-based family physician. Jane, for Libby, she is back tomorrow. In the meantime, enjoy the original greatest hits here on Zoomer Radio right after Bob's News. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.